Welcome to the Complexity Theory Podcast. My name is Zach McCormick, and I am a lawyer, but this is not legal advice. Today, my guest is Dan O'Kelly. He is a former ATF special agent with a resume that I think will interest you a great deal. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Zach. Thank you for having me. You are most welcome. Uh, I'll tell you what, we haven't known each other very long, um, but when I got your resume after I asked you to come on the show, you know, I was expecting what I would, you know, normally get from folks as a resume. What I actually got was what I'm going to just refer to as sort of a, uh, a booklet that looks like it was written by a rock star because there's so much in here that I, that I just said, oh, my gosh, I want to know about that. I want to know about that. And, I mean, the thing that jumped out just right off the bat, I mean, to be fair, it's on the front page, but the thing that jumped out was that not only have you had a long and storied career as a law enforcement officer at both, we'll call it the state or local level, but also at the federal level. And, and that has spanned, it has spanned several decades. Um, and I noticed that you actually had um, a connection with the case that inspired that movie, The War Dogs or War Dogs. I think that was, I think you said it was a 2016 movie. Right. I saw that movie. Excellent movie. Jonah Hill, I think, was the lead in that. He was. And I understand that your involvement came somewhat after the, the part of the, of the story that the movie focuses on, but in many ways is sort of an interesting postscript. Can you tell us about sort of, in summary, what your involvement was? Yeah. Um, Ephraim Diveroli is the main character. He's uh, a real guy. Um, that was the Jonah Hill character. Yeah, he was a uh, legitimate bidder on a government contract to provide ammunition to the friendly Afghan forces during that war. And uh, what he did, in fact, was go find a, and I'm, I'm just speaking broadly here, but a train load of ammunition that was out of date. I believe it was Chinese manufacture. Uh, it was not within what the contract called for, but he repackaged, cleaned it, tried to make it look new, and that's what he provided to the Afghan forces. The problem is they recognized it for what it was because the base of every cartridge called the head stamp has markings indented into it that show who and where, when it was made. Um, so he was indicted for dozens of counts of attempting to defraud the federal government or defrauding them and, and whatever. Um, he pled guilty to that ultimately, and he was awaiting sentencing. And during that time, he was still out scamming, trying to come up with ways to, to profit, uh, not necessarily legally. One of the people that he approached was a federally licensed gun dealer who said, well, hey, I know a guy, and then got a hold of us and said, do you want to be that guy? I said, sure. Um, <clears throat> the case agent um, is an agent who is also presently an attorney. He's also retired from ATF. Um, his name is Kevin McCann, and he's an, an attorney in Orlando, the Orlando area now. And uh, I still occasionally work with him. So ironically, hmm. he was the case agent on the investigation. He enlisted me as the undercover agent. And uh, I met with Diveroli. And he being a convicted felon, I said, you know, what are you looking for? What do you want to do? He had a contract with a Korean company 
to import. He had the sole importing contract to bring in 150,000 high-capacity magazines, uh, these being the copies of the Beta C-type magazine, the double drum, mm. and uh, a lot of other types. And uh, he said, well, I want to find a gun company that will put their name on these because they'll sell for many times over what, you know, generic bags will sell for. Can you do that? I said, sure. So I spoke to some contacts in a few different gun companies. I found uh, a CEO who was uh, willing to assist us. And uh, I told Diveroli that, you know, I found somebody, told him who it was. He was beside himself. Uh, I set up a meeting. We all met with the CEO and, uh, you know, they confirmed it. Yeah, we're in on this. And then at that point, Diveroli gave us, you know, a copy of the contract and uh, banking information and whatnot to prove that he was sincere. And we were able to perfect the case. Uh, him being a convicted felon at this point already, he couldn't be involved in that kind of thing. Plus, one of the meetings we made, um, he suggested that we do some shooting when we go back to that gun company because they had a range. I said, fine, I'll bring some toys if you bring some toys. And uh, while we were waiting for that meeting to happen, he said, well, what did you bring? I opened the back door of my truck. I had a couple of machine guns and a rifle, and he picked them up and started handling them and playing with them and whatnot, which, you know, felons can't handle or possess firearms. He just wanted to see him, and I opened the door. But then, you know, he took it from there and further incriminated himself and it was shortly after that. It got sort of funny. Um, at one point, he says, did you bring any ammo? I said, no. He said, well, are they going to supply ammo? Um, I don't know. They didn't offer to do that. I'm sure they'll give us a little bit. He says, well, we need to go to Walmart and just clean them out, get all the ammo they have. I said, well, you know, cool. I'm going to stay here and watch my guns. You can do that if you want. So he and his guys got in their car. It turned out to be a Walmart a mile down the road. They left, went down there. Uh, the Some of the surveillance agents went with them, and they went in and bought out this place of the calibers wow. of guns that I had brought. I mean, their trunk was dragging when they, wow. you know, they come back to the scene. Well, this adds more counts to it, and again, it was all his idea. Um, so there were they were in two cars. There were four of them. They were only in one guy and then two other guys in another car. And uh, when they got back, the two guys not, Diveroli pulled up next to me. Yeah, we got the ammo. I said, "Great, you know, where's uh, where's Ephraim? Oh, he's he's be along any second now." Okay, so we chat, chat, chat. Finally, mm -hmm. where the heck's Ephraim? Yeah, I don't know. So my cell rings. I step off to the side. I said, uh, "What's going on?" He says, "Execute, execute." He says, "I said, what do you mean?" He says, "We're doing the bust, you idiot." I said, "I know what execute means, you idiot." I said, "Where's Ephraim?" He goes, he's over here in the other side of the parking lot smoking a pipe with this other guy. And uh, it just turned into a circus. So, you know, they arrested him over on that side, arrested the guys next to me. Um, anyway, so, you know, that was my involvement. He ended up getting the extra counts added to his uh, charges, was eventually sentenced, did his time, and he's, he's back out on the streets today. Wow. Wow. It was a fun day. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, some guys 
probably can only dream about the kinds of experiences you had. I mean, you were an undercover federal agent in a right. high profile sting. Yes. How, I, uh, how did you feel? Well, it wasn't new. I, um, I was a police officer for 11 years before I became a fed and two years of my police career. I was a full-time undercover narc on a countywide task force. Um, and we learned how to do undercover the hard way with no training. There were mm. three of us. They gave you a, a wire to wear. They gave you buy money. And it's like, okay, they have a little bit of experience. You're the FNG. <laughs> Go out and learn from them. And then, you know, one guy would rotate out, a new guy would rotate in, and it, and it continued like that. So by the time I became a Fed, I loved undercover. It was, you know, I enjoyed it. Um, my first year on the job as a Fed, they won't let you do undercover. You, you know, no matter what your qualifications were that got you hired, once you get hired, you know, you're nobody now. You have to prove yourself again. So a year on the job, I was released to do undercover, and for the next seven years, 60, I would estimate 60% of my cases were self-initiated undercover. Um, and it continued like that. I, uh, what's self-initiated? Well, well, some cases can be assigned to you. Okay. Um, and those are usually reactive. You know, somebody did something here, go investigate it, go get the facts and perfect the case. And other cases are the ones that you start, you develop an informant, for instance, and that informant brings something to you. Hey, a guy just told me in a bar last night he wants this, he wants to do that, and uh, he needs a connection. Do you want to be that connection? Well, yeah. So then you make the case yourself. Mm. Um, so about two-thirds of my cases were that type because I enjoyed working undercover. Um, the Diveroli case was one of only three international uh, firearm trafficking cases that I worked. Um, I also had a case just in passing, uh, had a case with the Russian mafia in Chicago. Uh, they wanted to uh, export guns illegally into Lithuania and then into Russia and from Russia into Bosnia during the whole Bosnian war when mm -hmm. Milosevic was mm -hmm. doing his thing. And then uh, another agent and I uh, went to Germany and uh, did undercover over there on a guy who was shipping machine gun frames and other illegal items to the United States, um, you know, marking them as metal toys or machine parts or what have you. So we went over there, met the German undercover officers hmm. and introduced them to the bad guy. And um, that one was fun, too. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about this stuff like like uh, your last golf game. But, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, like, little boys – fantasize about as they're reading, you know, Dan Brown novels or they're watching James Bond or something like that. I mean, you're wearing a beard and you're wearing, you know, a comfy shirt, but you just described James Bond. That's you. I appreciate that, but I don't see it that way. Don't I you? Just, no. Let me ask you something. Can anybody do undercover work? Um, I would say that most anybody can you have to for starters undercover is fully von voluntarily voluntarily done it's fully voluntary is what it's trying to spit out there um you'll see in movies and on tv shows that you know a boss calls an agent or an officer in and throws a report at him and says hey you know you're doing this you're gonna all of a sudden pretend you're so-and-so and be undercover 
that's garbage. That's not the way it works. If you're going to work undercover, you have to have your heart and head in the game ahead of time. You have to want to do it because you have to have your, you have to be on your toes at all times. You have to double think every word that comes out of your mouth and, uh, you have to really be sincere. If, if you're, you know, if you have reservations, you have no business working undercover. Um, among the agents I worked with, um, during my career, I would say that probably only about one in 10 agents does any undercover, um, for various reasons. You know, some guys, uh, guys and girls just, you know, Hey, that's not my thing. I'll be a SWAT officer. I'll be a, uh, whatever. They have a specialty. If they're a polygraph examiner, if they're a dog handler, whatever. Um, not everybody has a specialty, but, but undercovers, not for everybody. Not for everybody. I would, no, I would not. I mean, as soon as you start forcing people to do undercover, you're going to have uh, a lot of injuries or worse. It's no, it needs to be voluntary. Are you acting when you're undercover? Yeah. You are lying your butt off. And I, I was going to add to that, but I, you know, I don't, I hate it when, uh, secrets get, you know, tradecraft gets given away. And so I, I'm watching what I'm saying now, but you have to, uh, you have to lie your butt off with a straight face, look people in the eye. And, uh, but by the same token, you're doing a noble thing. Uh, you know, your, your mission is just, and, um, you just keep your nose clean You keep your integrity you know, you're not going to become one of them, but you have to convince them that you're one of them. So that's what don't you start to sympathize with them at times. Yeah. There were guys that, uh, by the time I busted them, I was dealing with a lot of mixed feelings. I mean, I was really, I was really a little bit twisted on the inside because, you know, there have been times I've gone out with another agent or two and you, you show up and the guy's like, hey, man, what's happening? He recognizes you as one of his buds or yeah. friends. And you're like, dude, got some bad news. Here's who I really am. You put your hands behind your back. And you just see the life drain from their face. Like, what? Like, you know, WTF? Um, you put them in the back seat, cuffed up. And, uh, you know, when you glance in that rearview mirror and you see their face, it's different because you have uh, – but here's the thing. I've actually had to say, you know, at least one time to one of those people, look, you're the one that's in the wrong, not me. You're selling dope, dude. You're selling this. You're doing that. You're stealing cars. Um, because when I was a cop, it wasn't all about guns. That, that wasn't ATF stuff necessarily. That was people who were stealing cars and bringing them to me. Um, you know, drugs. The point is, Look, you're the one that crossed the line, not me. Did I lie to you? Yeah. But I don't know of any law against lying. You know, I did what I had to do to stop what you're doing. So it is what it is. I appreciate your candor. I mean, it seems like the kind of thing that you you have to come to terms with. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, it, it's not like... Um, not like I needed counseling for it or anything. I mean, because, hey, you know, you feel bad because you have that mixture of feelings. 
Uh, there were times when you laughed with this person. There were times when you uh, told them a joke and got them to laugh. You felt a little bit of camaraderie because they are a human. And, um, you know, not all of them are all bad, but got a job to do. You can't be, you can't continue with what you were doing. It's just not good stuff. And you knew it. You had consciousness of guilt. Um, you know, you played the game. I played the game. If you had won, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but. Hmm. So you start off at the local level in Indiana, right? Right. Just outside of Chicago. It's, uh, Northwest Indiana, the Gary Mm. area, Mm -hmm. if you know, Mm -hmm. scary Gary. (laughs) Um, And so were you always a gun guy? Yeah, I've been a gun guy since I was uh, a kid, actually. My grandfather got me started with a BB gun, would take me hunting, first shotgun, first twenty-two rifle. And uh, it wasn't just shooting. Um, Guns have always been my passion. Um, You know, I've tried a couple years of golf. you any good? I tr- no. And I, tr- you know, I tried the football team in high school and, uh, you know, played softball out as a kid, but guns have always been my passion. And it's not just shooting. It's the history, the development, uh, the way they've changed history and affected it, the, the genius in the design behind them. And it's just always been a super interest for me. And uh, it's parlayed itself into a career, actually. Uh, that's why when I left the police department, I wanted to go to ATF because I knew I would still be able to work in the gun field mm-hmm. versus, you know, DEA is drugs and whatever. Um, you said something, I think the last time that we had met and you'd said something which isn't always apparent, I suppose, to some folks. And that is everybody assumes that especially special agents, right? Like, whether it be FBI, DEA, ATF, they're all gun guys. And I think that that might be, that's a misconception, isn't it? It is. And that's the thing. For instance, uh, shortly after my wife and I met uh, 16 years ago, we, and I was already teaching my seminars through my company that I now run. And uh, I said, you know, this is going to be a, a, she, she attended one and I said, this is going to be a bunch of police officers and, uh, they don't know a lot about guns. She was surprised. What cops? I thought they were all gun experts. I said, no, uh, the truth is, you know, God love cops. I love cops, but in the police academy, you get taught how to shoot, when to shoot, when not to shoot. Um, and maybe one out of 10 of them will get sent to an armors class where you're taught how to repair the models that you're issued. But beyond that, police officers aren't given this in-depth hmm. uh, expertise in classification markings, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So in the field, during my entire career, I saw just constantly, uh, because I was, quote, the gun nut, the gun geek, you know, I would get, what is this, why, how, and... uh it became apparent to me that you know, there's a real lack, uh, a knowledge gap in law enforcement. And uh, so the way things played out after seven years in the field, uh, and I did that Russian mafia case that I mentioned, they said to me, congratulations, you're moving. Find a place to land. And they threw a list of cities 
or openings at me. And there was an opening at the ATF Academy in Georgia. That's Glencoe? Yes, for a firearm specialist. I mm. said, look no further. This is the one I want. And I was fortunate enough to get it. Had to really twist your arm for so, that one. Huh? Yeah. So I spent five and a half years on staff at the ATF Academy in charge of uh, teaching firearm technology, at least of the staff there. They would bring people in from headquarters, of course, and people from the field. That's the train-the-trainer work you did? Yes. And uh, so five and a half years of that, I, I just had an opportunity to really polish what I wanted to know. And uh, so when I finally retired, I said, uh, you know, well, actually another guy gave me the the idea. He said, uh, you should start a company teaching this hmm. because I've been to your seminars. I was teaching the seminars my last 11 years with ATF. You should do this full time mm -hmm. and start a company. And I, I hesitated, but after about a year I did it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm still doing it. And uh, so our company, uh, the International Firearm Specialist Academy, which everybody calls gunlearn.com because that's our website. It's a lot easier gun to say. Gunlearn.com. Yeah. Shameless plug time. So <laughs> gunlearn.com. This is your company? Yes. It's a little less of a mouthful than the IFSA. Um, so we teach seminars nationwide. Uh, a lot of our clients are law enforcement people, but we also get a lot of attorneys. We've had a number of doctors. We've had uh, you name it dealers, importers, collectors, manufacturers of firearms. It's open to anyone, including the general public. Uh, the only people we restrict is anybody who is not legally able to possess a firearm according to federal law because you're going to handle firearms in the class. Uh, we cannot have any of those people in the class. But, Can't have a war dog situation. Right. Again. But there's nothing classified about what we teach, nothing secret. It's just a course which makes you a fully competent, and I hate to use the word expert because mm. it's the most misused. And as soon as you call yourself an expert, you tend to have people start thinking, well, this is a blowhard over here. He thinks he's an expert. We call it specialist. Mm. You have more training than your colleagues in this field, so you specialize. You're a specialist. Um, if you become an expert and you can with this training, you can use that word, but that's a title that either your peers will give you because you've convinced them you know what you're doing, or a judge can give you, hmm. and then you've officially, as you know, been found an expert witness in court. Graduated. Um, yeah. So so what is it then that, you know, I know you've talked about it generally, but when you go to gunlearn.com, what is it you're learning that makes you an expert? What are you an expert in? Well, it's an entire course called the Certified Firearm Specialist course. It's broken into 14 separate modules so that you can take them as needed. If you don't want all 14, you can pick and choose. If you do want all 14, you can still do them at your pace and, of course, at your speed, home, office, whatever. Uh, but those modules are, um, if I get this order right, it's safety and clearing, classification, markings, nomenclature, ammunition, cycle of operation, mechanical types of operation, uh, curios and relics, and then there are the five categories of the national, I'm sorry, the four categories, 
numbers, sorry, of the National Firearms Act. Machine guns, short-barreled shotguns and rifles, destructive devices, silencers, and any other weapons. Five. Uh, and then the last one, there's one on court testimony. Hmm. If guns play a part in what you do uh, that may take you to court, like an officer or an attorney, of course, not that attorneys need any coaching in testifying in court, but uh, oh, sometimes no, police officers way. do. Well, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Perfection incarnate, right. yeah. yeah. But uh, that's that's the final um, module in the course. And uh, once a person completes all 14, uh, we confirm that through their account, of course, and then we send them the, the certificate, the support letter, and the swag, of course, and we will then be able to testify that, well, they didn't sleep through this. They actually proved... Uh, that they did learn the stuff because the tests are not gimmies. You know how we all take these um, required annual uh, testing for our jobs, bloodborne pathogens, what have you, and you just click through it maybe. I mean, some people might do that, right, while they're watching a football game and not really paying attention. It's just an exercise in futility. That is not this course. Uh, the tests actually do require you to apply yourself and have, no, have learned the material. Uh, but if, at that point, once someone has passed all those tests, we will certify, test, testify for them, that is what I'm saying, that they have learned it, that they are competent across the full range of firearm and ammunition topics. Are these online, in person, both? They are online. Uh, you can attend our live seminars, and uh, we do those every year at most of the major law enforcement agencies, uh, Seattle PD, Chicago PD, Miami, Boston, uh, St. Louis, and then a lot of the smaller ones. Uh, we have done eight contracted seminars for a federal law enforcement agency that refuses to be named, and I, I respect that. So it's one of the real big ones. But mm. uh, so so you you have this 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 arc, right? You start out local. You you were a gun guy. You get you and you found you found your calling with your undercover work, you've got some really big cases. It sounds like you dealt with that, that Russian Chicago mafia connection. I'm still trying to follow the logic there. They were in Chicago, but they wanted to export from the United States weapons to Lithuania and also buy from, from Russia. No, from Lithuania into Russia and then from Russia into Serbia. And the heck of it is they only wanted Russian for the most part, Russian guns. Uh, on that case, I was sitting in a motel room with my other undercover agent. And, of course, the room's all wired up with camera and sound, connecting room, right? How so many motel rooms. Just like rooms we see in the, in, the, in, the, in the TV shows and the movies. Yeah. There's a guy on the other side of the wall who's got the headphones. Oh, there like was an got. entire SWAT team in <laughs> the other room. And, uh, the you know, the deal was uh, I had a magic phrase that if he or the other agent or I said the magic phrase – become part of the carpet because the team's coming through that door to light it up. Um, so we're meeting with this guy, and I had this circular that is for licensed dealers, and it lists, you know, pictures and prices and all the guns. It looks like a newspaper. And I gave it to the guy. I said, what do you want? Tell me what you're looking for. So he picks out Russian Makarov pistols. He says, I want all of these that I can get. And he wanted some Uzis and whatever. Yeah, and at some point I said, wait a minute, you're Russian and you're 
taking these to Russia, Lithuania, which is actually a satellite of Russia at one time. Why, why are you coming to the United States to get Russian pistols? I said, look, dude, if you're, if you're lying to me, if you're actually going to sell these out of the trunk of your car at the stadium, you're going to get busted, and then you're going to give me up. So we're not doing this unless you convince me this stuff's actually leaving the country. And, and just for the folks that don't know, can you explain what the Makarov pistol is and why this threw a red flag for you? Yeah, the Makarov pistol um, is a, it's a, without getting technical, let's call it a 38 caliber pistol. It's a nine millimeter caliber pistol. And it's designed in Russia. Most of them are, or a lot of them are made in Russia. They're all made in the Eastern Bloc countries, Bulgaria and so forth. Um, I've heard it's loosely pat- patterned on the German or the, the Walther PPK. Looks a lot like a line. PPK, right. Yeah. The yeah. cartridge is a unique nine millimeter. Right, nine millimeter Makarov. It's similar to the 380 ACP. Um, but the point is, him, you know, I wanted to get this export aspect to the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, him buying these guns illegally is one thing, but if he's actually illegally exporting them for illegal purposes, that was another whole aspect. So we had U.S. Customs involved in the case, and that's why I held his feet to the fire during this chat. I said, look, dude, if you know, prove to me you're taking these out of the country, and why the heck would you be buying American, I'm sorry, Russian guns in America to take back to the source of them? Why don't you just get them there? He says, simple, they're $50 a piece here, and they're $500 a piece there at that time. Hmm. I said, okay, that makes sense. You know, there's a lot of profit simple margin economics. there. Yeah. Um, but so he, uh, hmm. not to get off on too much of a tangent on that case. No, but I mean, but, you know, I, I still have to wonder, how do you train yourself to keep your, your cool? How do, you, how do you sit there knowing that this guy could turn violent on you at any moment, regardless of whether the cavalry is exactly 25 feet away? How do you sit there and keep your blood pressure in check? How do you keep focused? How do you, how do you as you said, think about every word that's coming out of your mouth? When you work undercover, the the golden rule to undercover is what if, what if, what if, what if. You what if everything to death before you go to every meeting. You know, I mean, if you and I were, were in a situation like that where you think I'm a drug dealer, forget the microphones and all that, you and I are just having a conversation and you think I'm somebody else before I ever came here, I would have what ifed. I mean, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, mm-hmm. but what if the roof blows off? You know, mm-hmm. a, a, a unexpected tornado happens and the roof blows off, what am I going to do? So that during that meeting, any given meeting, no matter what happens, if I've done my homework, oh, problem Q, okay, I have answer Q. I've already thought this out. Problem L, whatever it is, we thought out problem L. I have answer L. And you have your safeguards in place, whatever they might be. Uh, If you just go in and wing it, you know, these impromptu undercover deals those are the dangerous ones where you didn't have a chance to what if it ahead of time but almost by nature doesn't this stuff require being dynamic i mean how can you what if if you only know that the deal is now going down at this time at this particular location you've got less than a day less than an hour less than five minutes well a lot of it is going to be comprised of situations you've dealt with before so during this deal where you and I are meeting, uh, one of the what-ifs is you all of a sudden say, you know what, the plumbing's not working, the AC conked out, we're going to do this uh, 
six blocks over at this other place I know of, so let's go there. And at that point, I have to either have a way in place to make sure that I know my surveillance people are hearing that and are going to follow us over there, hmm. uh, or I just have to beg out. I'm like, no, that's not happening for whatever hmm. reason because I'm not sure what you're up to. Look, you and I don't know each other. And sometimes you just have to say no. It sounds like you developed, you learned to develop tools to allow yourself to be adaptable. You do. Um, the fact is, during my five and a half years on staff at the ATF Academy, the previous guy who was in charge of teaching undercover for ATF was sent back to the field because that's a rotating position. Nobody mm. stays at the academy forever, so you don't get too stale. Uh, so when he left, I was appointed in charge of the ATF undercover school. So during 1998 and 99, I ran the school uh, for the in-service classes for agents and for, we had what was called a state and local undercover school. It was a two-week school, and uh, police officers from anywhere in the country could be sent by their agency to attend this. And we would, we went from 8 a.m. until 11 p.m., five days a week. I mean, it was an intense wow. school. And uh, we, there, it was the no screwing around training. Wow. Um, so I had that advantage, too. I mean, I remember seeing, um, I think it was an um, interview with Seinfeld, the comedian, and he said something like, if you have to go to comedy school, it's probably not going to get you where you want to go, because if you need the training, then you probably don't have what it takes to be right. a comic professionally. And I guess that's the question. It kind of seems like you just have the right or had, at the time, the right the right qualifications, the right combinations of, of gifts and, and traits to where you just were good at this. And yet you ran this school and you were doing it 20 hours, 18 hours a day. It sounds like something like that. Did you have guys where you could spot them and just say, it's not going to work out? Or did they already come uh, to you pretty well talented, ready to go, just needing to hone The students, skills? whether they were ATF agents or state and local officers, in order to get sent to that school by their boss, had to have already been working undercover. And if they were a flop at that endeavor, uh, you know, they probably would never have shown up. Their boss would not have approved them going. It's like, no, that's, you know, this isn't your, this isn't your cup of tea to begin mm -hmm. with. So no, we didn't, we didn't really have that. Gotcha. Uh, by the time they got to our school, they were pretty smooth. So you've got this illustrious career. I mean, you're, you're decorated here. Can you enjoy life now that you're retired? Can you turn this stuff off? I mean, no. are you able to walk down the street at all? Not really. <laughs> Tell you the truth. My wife's on me about it all the time. Um, I, uh, I deal with it because it's my normal. It's, you know, it's my normal. I, um, I still do guns seven days a week. Uh, I do a lot of casework for attorneys across the country as an expert witness, testify in court a lot. So at any given time, I have a murder trial, some federal gun prosecutions I'm helping with, uh, maybe a civil suit or two that I'm involved in. Um, Are you what ifing every every minute of the day? Um, I do that when I'm outside my home. Um, you know, anytime, and I've I've had to 
teach my wife some things like, you know, no matter where we are, um, please don't question me. If mm -hmm. I say, get under the table and we're in the middle of a dinner, mm -hmm. trust me, it's time to be under the table because a shooting is about to happen because I just saw a guy walk in wearing uh, a jacket on a 90 degree day and he just looks the part, something like that. I mean, it's a stretch, but you're trying to come up with some kind of a, an illustration, but you see things and, and, you know, as every cop, I'm, I'm not special on this regard. Every cop, every agent, uh, if they have, if they ever developed a situational awareness, especially the ones who did undercover, uh, the ones who were aggressive in their field work, you keep your head on a swivel, your eyes never stop moving, and you know not to miss a detail because that's the one that can get you. It's just hmm. just part of the game. So I, I stay aware, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I enjoy myself, and uh, I just never turn it off. So now you are on, on the private side, you're, you're private sector now. And, you know, one of the things that impressed me about your character was that, and it actually echoes one of the first things you said here today, was that your function is the job, which when I, when we talked about this before, it seemed like what you were saying was, I follow the law wherever that points me. That's true. I, uh, I get emails, I get phone calls from attorneys regularly, uh, you know, heard about you through XYZ, whatever. I have a case, wonder if you would listen to it, see if you can help me. And uh, they tell me in a nutshell what it's about. At that point, I say, well, I don't think I can help you and here's why. Or I say, I think I can help you. Uh, and I'll tell them why. I don't tell them how because that's a part of not giving away the store. If I give them, right. you know, then they don't need me. If <laughs> give away that's the your strategy, product. that's your product, right? But at that point, I always close with, "I'm going to tell you though that you're going to get the truth. I, I need to read your discovery, read the reports, whether you know police report, lab reports, autopsy reports, and I'm going to tell you my honest." take on this if that helps your case let's rock you know but if what i have to tell you doesn't help your case as a matter of fact it hurts your case you and i don't have to talk again you can go shopping for some person that works as a liar for hire as they call them you know a hired gun but that's not what i do um, my integrity is what keeps me afloat um, and for that matter <laughs> Uh, some people in ATF don't like me anymore because I uh, have even caused the Bureau of ATF to have to change the federal definition of a firearm within the last year by my testifying to what the law says versus what their practices are and or were. And uh, when I get criticized for it, I have said, I'm telling the truth. If you see where I'm lying, feel free to indict me for perjury, and yet no one has. Because I'm telling the truth. And, you know, anybody who has a problem with the truth, who's the bad guy? Uh, it's it's just... It's a, you're telling the truth. Exactly. It is what it is. But that's that's one of the last things I was hoping to, to talk to you about. Because, you know, for the folks that don't know, right, one of the, one of the roles that the ATF plays in our governmental structure is to try to help identify whether something is a gun. You know, for folks on the street... 
they may think they know what a gun is, but there's actually a legal definition. Right. And so one of the, one of the more common firearms in this country is what? The AR-15. Most common rifle in the country. Even if you don't know guns very well, you might recognize it. Some people might mistake it for the, the ubiquitous M16. Of course, that's, that's a military rifle, shoots fully automatic. We know this. But the 80% lower is, is what you're referencing when you're talking about the definition of a firearm, right? Actually, no, Zach. The, when first the definition of a firearm. There's a definition of a firearm under Title 18, the Gun Control Act, and as you know, there's a definition of a firearm under Title 26, the National Firearms Act. The definition under the Gun Control Act is actually four definitions. The first one everybody's familiar with, uh, any weapon which expels a projectile by the action of an explosive. Number two, the frame or receiver of any of the above. Uh, number three, any silencer and any and number four, any destructive device. So when it comes to 80% receivers, that is the result of somebody. I, I usually refer to the gun industry versus ATF's role as a cat and mouse game. Somebody in uh, the gun industry realizes what where the lines are drawn in federal law, and then they say, okay, I don't want to break the law, but I'm going to see what I can come up with that's just short of it, and that makes an opportunity for me to market something new and be the next, you know, multi-millionaire salesman, designer, entrepreneur. So at some point, somebody said, wait a minute, a frame or receiver of a firearm is a firearm according to the definition. So how close can I get to completing the lower of an AR-15 without crossing the line. Hey, ATF, where, where's the line drawn? And, and for the people that don't know, when you say lower. The lower receiver is the part of an AR-15 that since 1968, ATF, which wasn't even ATF then, it was still part of the IRS. Was uh, it? Yeah, they became their own bureau in 1972. But since then, they have always said, well, on an, an AR-15, the lower and I hate to use the word receiver, the lower receiver, that's the frame. That's the part that's regulated, has to be serialized, et cetera. And then again, this is when you say the lower por portion of the frame, you know, again, for the folks that don't know this, the AR-15 type of firearm literally has two main parts, right? You have the pointy part, that's the barrel, that's where the bullet comes out of. And then you have the part where all the mechanicals essentially go into making the bullet shoot through the barrel. And that is actually divided into a top half and a bottom half. It actually hinges open, right? Right, right. So when you're talking about the lower, you're talking about the bottom portion of that housing, right? right? It houses the fire control components. Um, so ATF said, you know, since day one, when this thing hit the market for civilians uh, as a semi-automatic, that, that that lower receiver, as they call it, is the firearm frame, and that's a firearm by itself as per the definition in Title 18. Well, they went on with that for decades and decades, and as an ATF agent, what could I do? You know, I never actually personally prosecuted anybody for having just those, and uh, viewers should keep in mind that with what I'm about to explain, 
once you put all the parts onto a lower and make it a shootable AR-15, whether that version, pistol version, rifle version, what have you, now it satisfies definition one. It's a firearm via a weapon which expels by the action of an explosive. It shoots. Yes. So as far as the type of firearms which are just bare frames or receivers, as far as that goes, ATF said, well, this AR lower is one of those. And uh, in 2014, there was a case going on in San Diego, California, where a guy had a shop that just sold web gear barrels for AR-15s, which are, of course, uncontrolled. And he sold these 80% lowers, these incomplete plastic polymer lowers. And ATF came to his store and said, you need to get a license to deal in firearms. You're selling firearms. We consider these plastic incomplete lowers to be firearms. Well, he's a former combat Marine from Iraq, and so was everybody that worked for him. And he's not one to be pushed around, and he knew differently. He said, no, they're not firearms. I'm not getting a license. Get out. And if you come back, bring a warrant. Well, two weeks later, they did. And they took 6,000 of these away from him, proned everybody out, didn't arrest anybody, but the usual, you know, gunpoint. And they, they take all his material and leave. And uh, so about a month later unsolicited, I heard from an attorney one day, and it was his attorney. Didn't realize that was the case yet. He says, can you make a determination for us as to whether an item is a firearm or not? Certainly send me the report, send me a copy of the item. So it shows up the next day, FedEx, whatever. I look at it, give him a call. I said, not only is this not a firearm, I said, if you complete one, 100% complete, like the factory would, it still only satisfies 50% of the definition of a firearm frame or receiver. He says, what? I said, look up the definition in 478.11 in, in the CFR. So you hear him typing and he's reading it. I said, this thing houses the hammer, check. Houses the firing components, check. Houses the bolt of breech block, nope, that's in the upper. Uh, receives the barrel, nope, that's also in the upper. And he was, you know... and. He's a wonderful attorney, uh, and I think I embarrassed him. I didn't mean to. He goes, can you put that in writing? I said, it's in writing. You're reading it. So we had a laugh about that. But, uh, you know, he meant in a statement form, and I knew that. I was just ribbing him. He's a good dude. Um, But I wrote that up. As a matter of fact, my uh, declaration that I wrote ended up being 27 pages long. And while I was at it, uh, I covered a number of other points that ATF is off the reservation on, in my humble opinion. Uh, He filed that with a court, and within a week or so, as I recall, ATF shows up with a truck at the guy's store, gives him back his uh, 6,000 80% lowers, and has him sign a receipt and drives away. Something I had never heard of happen in my entire ATF career. Wow. Um, And that snowballed into several other cases up until 2019, each of which were cases that I was retained on, testified in, and, uh, you know, the government did not prevail, we'll put it that way, uh, culminating in a case in Toledo in, I think it was 2019, the Roald Robeson case, where uh, it actually did go to trial. I testified, and uh, the judge 
acquitted both defendants. He admonished ATF, uh, telling them they needed to correct, you know, if they wanted to include things like this as firearms, they needed to fix their definition. Um, previous to that, ATF had been warned in a 2015 case, the one right after the uh, 80% lower thing, uh, ATF had been admonished in that one. Um, that was out of Oakland, California. That was the Jimenez case. Hmm. And uh, that resulted in then uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch writing a letter to then Speaker of the po House, Paul Ryan, and telling him that ATF needed to fix this definition because these things are not firearms, no matter how much you want them to be. Hmm. And, of course, ATF took no action. So, again, culminating in 2019 Roald Robeson case, ATF finally got the message. They changed the definition of a receiver. Um, and I've, that took took effect in uh, August of 22. And wow. a whole two days later, a federal judge enjoined them from enforcing it because he pointed out, ATF, you don't have the authority to write definitions. That's Congress's job. So as a result, the old definition is the only one that's still in effect, and it doesn't cover things like AR lowers, FAL uppers, the receiver, the, what ATF calls the receiver of all semi-automatic pistols. Mm. About 60% of the guns on the U.S. market today do not have a part that satisfies the definition in the CFR of mm. a receiver. It's not often that I get to talk to someone who may have single-handedly caused one of the most powerful executive agencies in our country to change their minds. So that's saying something. <laughs> um, it seems like you're passionate. It seems like you like what you do. It seems like you've liked what you've done. It seems like you're the kind of guy who's lived and doesn't have any regrets. Uh, I wouldn't say I don't have any regrets that I haven't made any mistakes. Um, I enjoy what I do. I do enjoy what I do, Zach. Um, you know, as far as the whole ATF thing, I was loyal to them. I did my job. Uh, but part of the oath you take is to tell the truth. And I am telling the truth. I don't see anybody charging me with perjury for lying about anything. And, uh, you know, anybody who has a problem with the truth, I'm not so sure who they think the bad guy is, but they're not happy with me for having pointed out some of these facts. Um, so what can I say? Oh, I've been interested. I've been interested in everything you have said. This is the part in the show where we do a shameless plug. We've talked a little bit about gunlearn.com. Um, how else can folks find you in, in your private consultancy? Um, our, well, email address is info at gunlearn.com. And uh, our website is just that, gunlearn.com. So uh, if you, you know. Are you are, on the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, you all know, that? We did have a couple of Facebook pages, and eventually Facebook blocked us because, hey, we're about firearms. Mm. <laughs> Despite the fact that we're about stopping crime guns mm -hmm. and, and supporting, you know, law-abiding citizens, they had a problem with that. Uh, I'm not that much of a social media guy. We do have a, a LinkedIn account and uh, a Twitter account. Don't use them that much. But uh, if anybody's interested in having one of our live seminars at their agency or their company, uh, please feel free to reach out. And uh, as a matter of fact, police agencies can get the training for free if they let us use their uh, classroom 
Hmm. We give them some free seats in return, and it's a win-win for everybody. Nice. Dan, thanks so much for talking. Thanks so much for sharing. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Zach. Thanks.